Shalom, everyone. Shalom, my friends. Welcome to the Light Lab podcast. I'm so glad that you're here with us today. This is our place to play with prayer and hold the gems of our liturgy to the light. Our mission here at the Light Lab is to make Jewish liturgy and prayer practice accessible and meaningful to all seekers. And if you are listening to this podcast, perhaps you are one of those seekers. And again, we are so glad that you're here. We invite you to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at thelight.lab to check out our new website at lightlab.co with resources, past episodes, beautiful, copious, detailed show notes all sorts of other fun stuff, upcoming events, all sorts of amazing, beautiful things at our website. And to join our Facebook group, we're hoping that it can become a place for us to discuss episodes and share ideas and collaborations and informations about tefillah education, what we're all here to do. I'm really excited to bring you today's interview with a good friend of mine, April N. Baskin. Now, April and I met many years ago at a conference, (laughs) at a Jewish education conference where she was tabling. And it's one of those instant connection sort of things. And gosh, it's been incredible to watch April blossom and grow into her own power and expertise, into her spiritual journey, which we will certainly talk about in this episode, into her Power really as a teacher, a facilitator, a sharer of wisdom, a translator of wisdom, and someone full of wisdom in her own right. So, so grateful that we've able to recently reconnect through the incredible programs and consulting and workshops that she's offering. And we're going to link to all of that here where you're listening to this episode and in our show notes, of course, of course. So let me tell you a little bit about April. April N. Baskin is an award-winning Black and Cherokee Jewish leader and will be ordained as a Kohenet, a Hebrew priestess, this August 2023. Ach, Mazel Tov in advance, April. She works full-time as the director of Joyous Justice, a multiracial, community-powered social justice and spiritual transformation organization, providing liberatory life and leadership coaching, consulting, and education. For 20 years, April has helped shift communities and institutions towards more equitable outcomes within and outside of the Jewish world. Recognized as a faith leader to watch by the Center for American Progress, April previously served as the Racial Justice Director of the Jewish Social Justice Roundtable and is the Union for Reform Judaism's immediate past vice president of Audacious Hospitality. We talk about April's spiritual journey her connection journey, what her justice work has to do with her spiritual work. And there is so much goodness in this interview. We hope you enjoy our chat with April N. Baskin. Welcome to the Light Lab, April. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Thrilled that we were able to be reconnected. And speaking of connection, that we have made this interview work. It has happened at the right time for us. I'm so grateful. 
as we <laughs> yay <laughs> as we like to start with on the show I, I want to invite you to think back onto your childhood and your upbringing what was your relationship to tefillah as we might conceive of it now to prayer and liturgy when you were a kiddo so um, when I was a kid what comes to mind is I'm not exactly sure when but a few years a couple years you know maybe it was a year maybe it was a few years so my family moved to Northern California the summer before fourth grade. And um, as I often share, moving to a place where there weren't many Jews really galvanized and catalyzed my mom. My mom says that my parents were New Jersey transplants, that if we'd grown up in the Northeast, my parents, we would have had a much more sort of passive, secular, ethnic occasionally religious Jewish upbringing, but moving to an area <laughs> where there were a few Jews, like put my mom into high gear. And as a number of people know, but also maybe some folks don't, my parents were initially faith couple and um, eventually my dad joined the Jewish people and they initially were and remained an interracial multiracial couple. And uh, it took them three tries or so to find a Jewish community that didn't reject them. And they landed in a reform community. My mom came from a of a reform and conservadox background. A number of years she spent participating or attending a conservative shul that had an Orthodox rabbi. And she did not have a great relationship with that particular clergy person. And so we grew up, I grew up in a reform shul and um, that was a bit more traditional that had some type standards. I think part of it was because that particular community in Northern California at the time um, was a hodgepodge of different folks with backgrounds kind of similar to my mom, but also different from like secular Jews to Jews who were raised Orthodox, who no longer felt connected to that specific way of being Jewish and were a part of this community. It was like a real eclectic bunch. And so we often had second day services for certain holidays. My rabbi was like, went to HUC, went to Hebrew Union College, was definitively reformed, but tended to be a bit more strict or traditional around certain things. So just to, to provide a little bit of a context of the culture that I grew up in. And so my mom, we, we not only joined a synagogue, but my mom got involved with the board and the religious school and helping like with the building campaign, because when we first joined them, they were operating out of a church for services and then renting space at a middle school for, for the Hebrew school program anyway. And so I just grew up immersed in that community and not attending services every Friday night, but pretty regularly, like once or twice a month and being one of the families who participated in the Oneg and bringing food for the noshing after services. And so during those early years, it was like I was just there and just sort of like a sponge and absorbing it all. And throughout my experience, my mom is a trained vocalist. So at times when we would be singing certain songs, I would slightly sarcastically wonder if God could hear me over my mom or my mom's vocals. <laughs> I mean, they were gorgeous. So and... 
Yeah. And so what I what's coming to mind, I ended up taking a slightly longer version, but it's maybe it's helpful for people to have a sense of the context from which I come. And then the thing that like the first thought that came to mind was what I was starting to say is in the lead up to my bat mitzvah, I really, and I think sort of just intuitively integrating some of the Jewish conditioning and learning that I had experienced around asking questions and rigorously engaging with the text, I began in my own mind to really engage with the liturgy in different ways and think about like, what did God mean to me? And what did these different prayers mean? And wanting to say the prayers and also read along. Oh, something else I also forgot to mention that definitely was an influence was, which is that for about half a year, it didn't work out for my brother. So we left, we briefly attended the one Jewish day school in Sacramento, which so in fifth grade, in my fifth grade year, we briefly attended a Jewish day school and I did remedial Hebrew that summer to get caught up in order to be at a somewhat similar level, at a beginner level as my peers. And and so that also then like also sped up my exposure to liturgy because we davened every day. Um, and I also got to see different ways that Jews pray because it was a pluralistic day school. So there was a full range. Anyway, so I'll wrap it up in just a sec, but I really started a dialogue that I still have to this day around noticing which prayers resonated with me in particular ways and finding at times that I wasn't always satisfied with the discussion or the teaching around the liturgy in the space, but I would often find some deeper meaning, whether it was a specific phrase or an alternative version of the prayer in the Siddur itself. And so, yeah, so I think it was like a very, and one specific example that was a recurring theme is that I generally did that with all the prayers. And then was sort of the conversation I began to have around, do I believe in God? And if so, how, and in what terms, and how does that relate to these different prayers? And to this day, I still carry with me some of what I decided at that time, which is that like, God is every, if God is everywhere and in everything, then that means a number of these prayers to one extent or another apply to me and everyone else in this room and like the carpet and the cars outside. And and like, I would just take a lot of time thinking about some of the prayers through that lens and how they usually did or didn't. And then I would think about it more until it made sense in my mind, like how it made sense and in what ways and how that shifted when I just thought of God as is often thought in just kind of in general as this like powerful anthropomorphic perhaps man in the sky as opposed to um, our interconnectedness and in everywhere and everything and and the mundane being incredibly sacred and special and also the ethereal like all of those different layers and so especially as, as I got older and certain things got a little bit repetitive with my ADHD mind which I didn't know I had ADHD at that time but I had been diagnosed a few years earlier, I, f- I found that that kept the experience both spiritual for me and also intellectually engaging. So Debarty, I think I'll <laughs> stop there. <laughs> That's so great. I think to have the awareness that you are not just able, but encouraged to ask questions and wrestle and figure it out for yourself is a very powerful thing. And Please correct me if I'm wrong. What it sounds like is that while you were active in Jewish life, maybe people weren't necessarily talking about God or about 
what the prayers were supposed to mean. I'm wondering, did you have an understanding of prayer and God before you started questioning? And where did that come from, do you think? And were there any adults in your life talking about that? A little bit, yes. So what and if a couple key examples come to mind. So that was definitely something that was part of the curriculum and experience at the Shalom School at the Pluralistic Jewish Day School in Sacramento. Uh, but since I only attended for six months, and it wasn't like a daily thing, but I remember specifically at one point, you know, this amazing educator, Leslie Cooperstein, you know, talking about the Micha Mocha and just, you know, both the, the, the Torah elements of it and, and also talking about it in different ways and the Hebrew and unpacking that. And I loved that. Like, like Judaism and, and Jewish text study in different ways really developed a love of etymology to me. Like I, I find that fascinating so much so that I asked a, a similar, like a, like a very Jewy type question, which I had, I, I think I mostly didn't, I had a little bit of self-awareness of, but then I asked, as I asked the question and like the quizzical faces, I asked like an, a similar type of question to my partners, to my Muslim partners, family about a word in, in Wolof and Arabic. And they, and they were just like, what are you, I don't even, and it was just like, well, I felt so alone. And I was like, oh, I miss my Jewish people right now. <laughs> um, and not that only Jews do that, but you know, it's just something that we really love to do. And then the other thing that comes to mind is in preparation for my bat mitzvah, I had additional tutoring and help around both understanding the liturgy in certain ways and also strengthening and refining my Hebrew and pronunciation with another Jewish educator, Alana Shapiro, who was also a family friend. And she would explain and she, in a way that was a bit, that was different from Leslie, but she would bring, but still, but she would bring certain passages to light or either because she just wanted to explain certain pieces or if there were parts of the Hebrew where I just seemed to struggle, you know, she would do a little bit of storytelling or tell me different things that help further remember those parts and make them meaningful. It seems like you had educators and people in your life who were exploring this with you and taking your questions seriously, which is really amazing and something not to take for granted. And that yeah. you, yeah, and that you were able to have this kind of almost epiphany, even though it sounds like it was an ongoing process before your bat mitzvah, and that you felt empowered to ask those questions and that it was your right, you know, as a Jewish person, taking your place within your community and your people to ask these questions is really powerful. Um, not everybody gets yeah. that. Yeah. 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 And I would add to, to everything that was said, like my rabbi was super helpful around like the essential, like asking questions and engaging with the tradition. And, you know, he would always say like every Shabbos, hi, Rabbi Schwab, <laughs> Rabbi Marvin Schwab. You know, like Judaism is not a spectator sport. You need to part, you know, like, you know, <laughs> every, every B'nai Mitzvah, um, every Bar Mitzvah. So. It's <laughs> a good line. I adore him. Um, my parents really supported that. And specifically, like just the milieu in which I was raised is before my dad met my mother, he identified as agnostic. 
And to this day, he's still, he's just such an intellectual. And so he really can like, is really willing to consider and be present with a range of different ideas. And how much of that is Jewish versus him? I'm not sure. He also has Jewish heritage in that his grandfather on his mother's side was a Jewish, his great grandfather was a Jewish man. And then his, and then the daughter of that interracial interfaith partnership opted to become a Christian minister (laughs) Um, and uh, was not so happy about some, I think I can't fully tell, but my sense is like she went a different path. And, and then my mother's mother in her later years was profoundly interspiritual and studied different things, very much part of my mom's Jewish upbringing, and then really started exploring Egyptology and different. So I'd grown up in this context in which both in the Jewish space and also in parts of my extended interfaith family, there was really a a value in rigorous and intimate engagement with tradition and texts and religion and finding one's place within it and also allowing that to evolve over time. That's beautiful. A a never ending, a never ending your young adulthood, maybe I'm thinking college years and beyond. Were there yes. (laughs) Were there experiences? Were there teachers? How did you grow or change or become stronger in your relationship to prayer and liturgy and God over that time in your life? So there are a couple key milestones there, and I might rewind it a little bit. And something that I forgot to mention that is another variable in the in-between, between around my bat mitzvah age and then going into my college years, um, is my involvement in youth movement. So in my sophomore year of high school, my mom, as a punishment, sent me to a nifty event. <laughs> I was supposed to be attending sports arama at my public high school. And I was one of the two choreographers who'd like set up all the dancing for our classes, competition performance thing. And my mom was like, I don't remember what it was like. You're talking back too much or you're like hiding food in the bedroom and there are ants in the bedroom again. Um, I was hungry all the time. (laughs) I'll never forget. I don't, I don't think that was the reason why, but there was one point where I'd hid food under my bed and I had ADHD, so I forgot about it. I mean, I, again, I didn't know that I had ADHD. I didn't know <laughs> that I was diagnosed as having ADHD as a kid until like two years ago. Oh my gosh. I was like, nah. <laughs> so, um, so I left food and the dog went into the bedroom and the his ball ran under the bed and my mom went to get it. And like, apparently like a bunch of ants. It's not, it was not a fun, it's not a fun experience for anyone. Um, least of all me. Um, so anyway, I don't remember what I'd done or hadn't done. I was a pretty well-behaved kid, but I also um, enjoyed arguing. So, um, so whatever, something happened, didn't do my responsibilities. So she said, you're going to a nifty event instead. (coughs) I was very resentful, but it turned out to be amazing and I loved it. And missed like multiple school dances and things and various other things to participate and be a part of that youth movement. Um, So there was also that piece where that, where I got exposed to what I now kind of attribute to, or what I think is at times attributed to sort of like renewal movement culture in terms of like davening outdoors um, or just like singing, like engaging in prayer or song with a tremendous amount of ruach that, you know, with a tremendous amount of spirit that really 
and the communal connection and that just you know, took everything to an exponential level, which occasionally at times when I would attend my services at home, made those services a lot more boring because I wanted to also be like shouting or doing different things or, you know, and I didn't fully expect it to be like my home services, but I, I was missing some of of the spiritual engagement and fulfillment and vibrancy that I got from that space. And I specifically remember a service that we did outdoors and and how much I loved it. I'd grown up in suburbs. My parents were just really awesome in this way, among other ways. And we grew up in an apartment complex that was in, that was surrounded by a ravine that had a lot of wild open space. So like I had turkeys outside my window every morning and grew up with wild birds and game and reptiles and like grew up in this lush environment and really, and really my love of an interconnectedness, interconnectedness with nature came alive in that space. And so to integrate that with Judaism, which I loved so much, like, Oh, that was the coolest. And when I experienced that again, at a couple other times in community, which hasn't been very often. And now obviously I've chosen a path, which we'll get to a little later, you know, through Kohenet, where I get to do that a lot more. Each of those times stand out to me far and above most other experiences as being incredible for me, those being like just a renewal service I attended once that was outside at a, with a shul in Massachusetts, with a renewal shul in Massachusetts. And and I was like, oh, yeah, I love this. And then also during Occupy Wall Street when I was living in D.C., where it was just in a park and we did a tour service for Yom Kippur. And at times often the high holidays are a difficult time for me. I don't always relate to the liturgy so much or the, the culture of the service, but doing the service outside with both Jews and also allies and just being near other folks who were engaged in political occupation and different things like that in protest and having the like Torah out on a table with a cloth. Like there was something about that that really brought it live to me. And also to be so visibly Jewish with other Jews. Um, So anyway, so high school. So I think there's like that piece where the, where like Jewish youth movements in my case, the reform movement, but I, I could have also been in a different movement, but like really brought a number of things to life for me, including the services and to be with my peers who also were, were weirdly or not wonderfully, wonderfully and weirdly into it as I was, <laughs> was just great. And also noticing, like I noticed as I was interested in potentially, which I eventually was the social action vice president for my region, being interested in leadership and noticing like the role of the RCVP, the religion and culture vice president and being like, oh, noticing even then, which was, I didn't fully register it now. Now it's interesting to think of where to feel less it's for me and how it continues to evolve and davening and is uh, I was very clear that like, whoa, that's too in-depth for me. Like, I don't think I would enjoy that. I appreciate what they do. I like what they coordinate, but being involved in coordinating the text at that level and thinking about that thing, that's, I I was clear that that wasn't most of the other leadership roles. I was like, oh, maybe I could do that. And I was like, no, that's not, that's like a little too deep for me around that piece. So when I went to college, to answer your question, the actual question you asked me, a couple of things stood out. I, I mean, there's a multiple things. So I was, I specifically chose a school that had 
an active Jewish life. That was something my parents encouraged me to do. And it made sense to me given how much I loved Judaism. Oh boy, there's so much we could say during these college years, but it just occurred to me. But um, I started to go down a bit of the Balshuva path, like becoming more observant because, and which with some of my family's rebellion. And for me, it was much more simple of like, Oh, I, like I love being Jewish and I can be more Jewish. Like, that, was, that was, it wasn't, right. it was just, it was just more, right. Like, it's like, this is great. Or there's more I can do. There's more like, what is this show me Shabbat? Oh, this is interesting. And so, but, but that's perhaps for another conversation or maybe this one, but the thing that I, so I began attending services and at Tufts, you know, they had at that time, I think primarily two services, a reform and conservative service. And and there was also, I think my year was maybe the year that Chabad came onto campus. And, and I didn't always resonate with it because in terms of like the, the couple there, they were lovely and usually pretty nice to me. But at times I noticed across different Chabad spaces in college, which may have shifted to an extent that me being a person of color in those contexts was really variable of either like extreme welcoming or kind of extreme rejection to the point of it being like I wasn't there at all and or potentially a threat and as someone who had decided to mostly live a dry college life the amount of alcohol that was shared in that space bothered me like I didn't it just seemed I didn't like that and I and I could tell that other people liked it but I was different in that way a number of my core friends I made through Hillel and one night at dinner on a Friday night after services, my friend Jay and I, Jay was a year ahead of me, Jay Vladimir, we went to the cafe to hang out and talk and eat some food. And we got in a conversation about God. And I talked and I spoke with him about my perception and the different ways that I think about God, some of which I just shared earlier with you in this conversation. And Jay was like, you know, April, I've been taking a religion class and it's, it's what you're saying sounds a lot like what I've learned about Buddhism. I think, I think you should look into Buddhism. <laughs> and I wasn't like, I wasn't like, sir, you know, I was just talking with him. It wasn't that there was any discontent per se. And then Jay literally, you know, it was like one of those friendship things that I'm really grateful at the time, but he like dragged me to a Buddhist Sangha. Like I was like, but I had a lot of, I had a hard time getting there. And so Jay like literally it's like, I found it. It's meeting at seven. We're next week. We're going to go. I think you might like it. Let's try it. <laughs> you know? And I was like, mm, okay. Um, I was like, are you sure? Yes, yes, we're going in. So, and then I, I basically never looked back and I really connected with meditation as a number of Jews have. And that started to shift my orientation. And it was around my freshman year of college at some point where I had just had kind of a mixed experience. One, I noticed that um, the reform rabbi at Tufts at the time, Rabbi Jeff Summit, was like amazing and a cool ethnomusicologist and just a lovely human being. I noticed that his divrei Torah about the weekly Torah portion consistently, which I hadn't experienced before, <laughs> consistently was relevant in my like mm. every week. And so that was cool, which is a bit different than the lit liturgy itself. And I started beginning to shift my relationship to the prayer where I had, I had a meaningful experience with it, but I began noticing with meditation that 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 sort of like being in nature, that that was more resonant for me in particular hmm. ways. 
And it felt like a clearing, like it felt like as if I had a canvas or like a glass window, that if there was smudge or gunk on it or something that when I engaged in meditation or when I was in Sangha space, it it cleared it away and I could see and perceive and exist more clearly. And I really loved that. And I found often in Jewish space, my experience at the time was that there was more of a putting on, which at times was helpful and other times was not around perspectives and thoughts and that it was meaningful for me, but that it began feeling a bit more like an ethnic experience, like an important Mm. ethnic experience more so than something that fed my soul. And that, that sort of discussion around that and consideration around that began to take place. I also want to note just for what it's worth that at times I did have different religious experiences at Tufts Hillel. And I think it was primarily related to nature and the fact Mm. that the Hillel was this gorgeous building that the, where the reform minion met, it had like an entire curved wall that was glass and there were trees outside and also had a a sun, like an exposed glass roof. Wow. And so, yeah, it was really beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's really lovely. And it's like wood and there's like wood paneling. It's like really beautiful aesthetic, the whole building and especially that space. And and so at times went during the Divrei Torah or during the davening itself, but also not usually because it was an, an around. And so we were normally facing the center, but even still being held by that. Like there's this ongoing theme of nature and some other variables being important notes or elements for me and having a holistic experience. Yeah. So those were, those are some ways that it started, that it continued to evolve for me in my young adult life. And interestingly, around this time, as I was noticing this, I simultaneously on this Balchuva path where I you know, beginning to observe different elements of halakha or Jewish law more strictly, although it was always sort of, how would I say this? Like feminist and flexible in nature. Mm. Like it wasn't so much that I, like throughout all of this, I didn't necessarily literally believe the halakha, but I loved the ways that the rituals and the halakha could bring me closer could give me a more vivid experience of Mm. peoplehood and also spirituality and mindfulness and spirituality woven into daily life. And the last thing I'll say is that something that really helped one of the integrations that I had, it was just in my personal world. So it's interesting to share it. I never talked about this is I felt really torn because different parts of my family really didn't like the idea of being observant. Mm-hmm. They saw it almost as an affront. And, and that, again, that really, I really didn't understand that. Like I told you the part before about me being encouraged to attend a Jewish school, but this, you know, the statement was sort of like, we would be very dis if you don't, which I didn't focus on so much because I wanted to attend a school that had a large Jewish population, but I was also like, Hmm, okay. But there was this, you know, for me, what I still perceive in some ways, I mean, I get it a little bit more now, but perceive as a little bit of an odd glass ceiling. And something that I spent a lot of time grappling with and and that helped me a little bit, but it also was hard was thinking about this concept from Buddhism about the middle path and trying to straddle the the different variables that I mentioned around wanting to be more observant, but also not wanting to leave my family 
behind. And that was kind of the ways that I was being positioned and, and noticing as I'm just taught in Buddhism, the middle path is harder. And so it's interesting because in certain spaces and certain like Orthodox or Chabad spaces, like it was talked about, like the observing halakha was more righteous in certain ways and more difficult. And from my perspective, with my patterning, I am actually being more observant in a lot of ways would be easier for me and clear and clean cut. And, and what was very difficult was trying to, to negotiate those different pieces. And ultimately, a year or two later in college, I opted to table it and put it on the shelf, put table my Balchuva journey. And I, and I opted to choose my family at the time. And I planned on picking it back up after college and after I'd gotten some professional success under my belt and thinking that maybe that would make a difference for my family. But by the time I got to that point, my ongoing self-evolution and different things had shifted. And also I felt like my life already had so much momentum and it's, it felt much more difficult as a young professional. Like I chose where I lived in DC at the time. I chose to have it be in walking distance to a conservative shul. But then when I went to do like to costure my kitchen or all these different things, it just, it felt like such a steeper climb. And so I just decided to let it go for the time being. Hmm. In that same kind of intentional way that you have been asking, how does this fit in my life? How does this make sense to me? How, what are the questions that I have about it? it it's really great to hear, yeah, to hear your reflections on this journey. And also that it, sound, it seems like you were thinking about it as a journey while it was going on, which, you know, I, I don't know if I have the self-awareness to do that. It's really in like looking back that I find those threads. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering kind of, as a professional and kind of you starting to work in the Jewish world around welcoming audacious hospitality as the URJ <laughs> might call it or had called it, interfaith work and interracial work, how did, did you see spirituality, God, prayer, did that intersect with this work at all? Did you either for yourself or within the work itself? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think it's like yes and no. So they are obviously now they're it's, it's become more explicitly intertwined in recent years, but my drive around building shared power and facilitating belonging dynamics of oppression was rooted in was rooted in my drive for justice and is very much part of my calling and I mostly saw myself as a Jew and that my tradition helped me in those places but it wasn't that the spirituality was explicitly intertwined at least in the beginning but through different programs and supports like you know, I participated in the first cohort of the, and they had different text studies and pieces from Jews and also just like traditional Jewish text. And I'm trying to, I'm like having to remember this and there were, and, and that really helped to, to, to create a, to create a through line, like the, the first text that is sort of the basis of the Jeremiah Fellowship is the passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah that so 
Oh, I love it so much. I shared it at my friend's wedding. Several, I loved it too, is that passage that says something along the lines of when you're in exile, make it your home, like build homes and live in them and befriend the people in your town and work for justice in your area or in advancing justice. You will, in this community, you will have a home and I'd been feeling really torn in different ways and that helped to be like, oh, right, I can actually, even as I, as I felt in exile in different ways, because my immediate family was in Northern California, a lot of my extended family was in the South and in the Northeast, and here I was in the Mid-Atlantic and, and just had that distance in a number of ways that felt very aligned with the idea of, of the Jewish people being in exile but also being somewhere that was important too. And, and then the other thing that's coming to mind, and I can't quite remember where I learned it. I, I can't remember if it was in the fellowship if it, or if it was before this, is that doesn't, I don't know if it directly ties to the liturgy, but it's just a Jewish concept that meant everything to me is that I loved this concept that came in around that like late college, young professional years time, this concept of shalem right? Which is similar to shalom and shalem meaning wholeness and also like shelter. Like there's like these threads of peace, shelter, and wholeness. And there are themes for me as a multiracial person who's lived in nearly every region of the United States, multiplicity of experience on several different ways where there is both a, a valuing and love of that richness and also a desire to feel whole across those different experiences. And so when you ask me that, that's a piece that comes to mind for me around it. And, and there were other ways where spirituality was explicitly woven through the Jeremiah fellowship. But I think really, Eliana, that it wasn't until the past few years Um, having started and engaged in or actively engaging in my African and indigenous coming homework and wanting to reconcile that and weave that with my Judaism, that this question has been one that I've really prior to that, I guess, you know, I don't know if it's partially how my mind works and also maybe my was that, that liturgy was separate from my, it was woven in the porch to it, but it wasn't a direct or, or there wasn't a strong, intense, very clear, direct through line. So pick that up within the last few years. <laughs> how <laughs> how has that journey coming homeness that you, as you so beautifully put it, how has that intersected with your Jewish spiritual journey, with your calling to Kohenet, with your justice work? Because it seems, at least to me on the outside, all shalem, like all a piece of one another. I'm wondering how that manifested for you. Long time. I, as I began having certain things that I didn't even know what they were, but certain things starting to come through me, like a just intuitively, not even explicitly seeking it out, but through certain songs or certain mystical experiences, beginning to feel the very real presence of my ancestors and my living and my life. And at the time when it first started, I thought it was in my brain. In retrospect, I think it was them beginning to <laughs> come onto my radar more. And I really, oh, it's just, oh, this is intense. How intense do I want to get right now? Like, 
The other thing that I'd started in my career that I'd started in college that ended up being a part of my career. And I, when I was in school, I thought I was going to go into public health. And then I didn't get into an accelerated, into an accelerated like five year program. And that was a bit of a bummer. And, and then in the interim, I began getting more passionate about Jewish belonging in different ways and, and also Jews of color, which was just just so awesome in different ways. And I began saying this thing that I've been thinking about just in the last few days. Oh, this is, it might not be as intense for the listener, but it feels really intense for me. Idea that I would talk about in college and that I included in my thesis and I talked about in my professional career where I noticed in different ways. One, so part of my college experience, there were many elements of my college Jewish experience and there were many complicated parts, which is that I had grown up, it wasn't perfect, but in a pretty sheltered and very supportive Jewish community. So I didn't experience my identity getting questioned a lot or having too many negative experiences. Like I had a couple in my regional youth group experience, but even then again, it was like Northern California culture. So at times it was more like moments of like appropriating black culture at times in ways that I really liked. That was like fun to me in other ways where I was like, Oh, you know, this feels like low key. (laughs) Like a few steps down from blackface, I'm not really, but like that, but even still, but like I overall, I felt like I really belonged and it was fun. And, but it wasn't until college that on like a near any time or like every Friday night, at least multiple times, my identity would be questioned and my belonging or like, you know, I began fielding that stuff. And so this idea started to develop for me that has been central to my belonging work in different ways or the, the impetus of it, which is that. I had this metaphor that I would say, and, I, and, every, and every time I say it, I like I envision the doors of my Hillel building of like, I want to do work in the Jewish community and I want us to collectively work so that different members of our community don't feel that they have to check parts of themselves at the door in order to belong. And I'd done this work extensively. <sighs> This is so intense. I haven't been able to look at it. And it's interesting because even as I did that, so I did that work and I was deeply involved in movement work around advancing belonging, particularly, but not exclusively around racial and ethnic identity. And early on, like while, even while I was still in college, I was spotted by and nurtured by different leaders like Yavila, who introduced me to Edith Klein, who was always Edith. And at the time, Andrea Jacobs and the Keshet staff were really great about having an intersectional analysis and wanting to work with me and partner with me in different ways of having a holistic approach to belonging in the Jewish community, which I'm just always so here for that kind of intersectional and loving movement work. So I'd been doing all that. And what was really interesting and just so complex for me, Eliana, is that it was both a labor of love and it was a lot of work. And there was a lot of resistance I was working against. So much so that several years later, as I began to have these different parts of my spirituality emerge, my immediate thought without even remembering the work I'd done around my racial belonging was like, there is no way I can share this and and be included in this Jewish community. Like, and I think the subtext or the the part of it was like, I've had to work tooth and nail to belong, just being a black multiracial person. And now I want this into the mix. There's no way. There's no way. And so I went into like deep 
and secrecy about it. Because at the time in my young professional career, I was uh, doing a fellowship and and I was often experiencing a lot of exclusion. Like I have some friendships from that space that lasts to this day. And I also was both subtly and directly bullied by staff of the institutions with whom I worked and also some of my other fellows. And I was just like, yay, diversity. And to me, it was like, we're global Jewish people. Like to me, it was just so obvious. Like this is a, like, it's not like, I'm not telling you that I'm having visions about crows landing on my back and learning how to begin engaging with the spirit world. And y'all can barely can barely include me and tolerate me. Hmm. And so I was just like, my immediate, like without thinking about it much, this was well before I had coaching and learned all these different things that I had learned. And it was just like, nope, <laughs> need to go underground. Hmm. And so my coming homework has been around. It's actually been going on for a long time, but, and I selected Kohenet because it was, it felt like from what I could tell, the only place my only option, and luckily I thought it was a fantastic option, but like my only viable option for me to rigorously continue to engage and be more open. And that, and that took years. Like, I think it probably is still underway. I think I've finally mostly am through it, but I've gone through like 12 to 20 layers <laughs> um, relating to my, to genocide material, to the Jew, like just so many, the professional elements, the spirituality, will people be confused? Do I care? Like so many layers that both felt, feels really different from the racial justice piece. And also is very much because of the resistance over these 20 years. Like it's different now, <laughs> but I did it when initially when people were like, what's a dual, like, dual color even a thing? Like, I don't like, like, it was just a totally different scenario. So after a multiple years of being exposed and just meeting more and more lovely people and noticing they continually had some or a lot of connection with Kohenet and over time realizing that I was like, I think this, this portal is expansive enough. And it so has been. Hmm for me to integrate, to engage in Shalem around these deeply fundamental parts of who I am and to do it with rigor and passion and bring those things to life while being held in a Jewish context. And, not, and by that, I mean explicitly being very clear and being supported by a community of people where I wasn't being forced to choose and where I could, and that where actually these different facets I could be learning about an earth-based feminist approach to Judaism in which not only were these other parts of my identity tolerated, but where they could actually be whole and be in deep dialogue mm -hmm. with my Judaism and beautifully coexist and support one another as a part of my Jewish practice. And at times as perhaps as things that are just a part of me and might extend beyond my Judaism, you know, but, but figure that all out and, and have community around that. Because to me, it felt like I needed to go through this portal that felt like if I did it alone, it might, the dissonance and the, all of the different societal vari variables and also what I have in all the messaging I'd had internally with me, it felt like it might like rip, it might actually rip me apart and so I wanted to be with other people and in a container that felt safe 
and like it could hold all of that and where I where I could have some room to be messy and still be in alignment with the accountability that I wanted to have to my connection to Judaism. And a bonus was that it's actually still an active dialogue. I just had an email exchange about it with, with Rav Yaila, with Rabbi Jill Hammer a couple weeks ago about tefillah and like within Kohenet, the tefillah piece to me is a little bit more interesting where it's like, mm-hmm. because it does have so many embodied elements and so many different facets and at times meditation, and these other things that it's often, it's still not the same for me as like being in nature. Like there's something about that for me that is just really potent or certain, like I have certain things that really take me to a spiritual place, like group meditation with other people who are very experienced meditators, being in nature at times in certain ways, like being around people who are like belting their heart out, like in song or doing something where part of it's the performance and part of it for me is the soul of it is the, mm. is the Kavana, right. And the, the, you know, that like when they, like I, I can trend as they are transcending and moving through portals, I can, I can join them in that. So, I mean, I, I'm so, so beyond glad and feel so much like happiness and excitement for you that you were able to find this place to give yourself the belonging that you've worked so hard to give the Jewish community really. And to, sometimes we don't always do that for ourselves. We don't give ourselves that permission just so weird and annoying to me as someone who's been so thoughtful about it. And yet still this whole chasm developed, like it's, I just can't even fully think about it, you know? And I, and I don't think it's hypocrisy and I think it's just about the complexity of it, but it's bizarre to me. This is something that I full throatedly said and believed while I was deeply hiding. And in my part of it, the consciousness, so my consciousness at the time was, that this doesn't have a, this doesn't, this actually doesn't have a place, Mm. that this will actually explicitly be rejected. It'll be too much. And then over time, as it was still something that I was holding on to, and I held on to it, the the thing that helped me hold on to it was explicitly the, the ethnic piece pieces and the identity pieces where I was like, I have no idea how this fits into the Jewish communal milieu, like how I carry this wholehearted, not that I need to bring it, but how I can show up as my full self. But I also know that I have a right to, because this is part of my heritage. Like that was, that was how I was able to hold on to it. And then over time as it grew and it became more of me, then I guess that's, that kind of answers the question. Then it became a thing where I was like, okay, now I need to reconcile this because I need to, and not necessarily in the whole of the Jewish community, but in the ways that are ways that are relevant for me, I need to have belonging around this. But before, even as I was championing this, and that just pains me because it makes me think like, which again, I think and intuitively I know I shouldn't be hard on myself. Are there like people I let down by this? Mm. And also I just literally didn't have the capacity then, but like, and I was saying these things and I think that there likely are, I was saying them so boldly that I suspect there were people who who had different experiences that I had around the hiding, but perhaps weren't also people of color who, for, who like heard what I said and were like, yeah. And like use that to, to work for belonging. Like they didn't just because I had these shadows and fears and hidden parts didn't necessarily mean that that stopped other people from 
bringing those things into the light and like cultivating them and then showing up in the Jewish community and not checking those parts of themselves at the door. Right. But Sorry, you were you were saying, yeah, no, please continue. No, this is this is good and it's it's totally understandable though that if you were engaged in the work of trying to help the Jewish community be more welcoming that you also saw the shadow side of that, all of the ways that the Jewish community That's isn't <laughs> and wasn't welcoming and that that could lead to hesitancy around this even though of course to me ancestor work is so ingrained in the liturgy i wouldn't necessarily have thought right. about it like that 10 years ago you know but right right <laughs> you know as same, my friend Ava morel reminded me like we start our amida by calling forth the memories of our ancestors and feeling our connection to them in the ground and through the earth <sighs> And through their names, it's, it's there, like in the most present there. prayer that we have. Yeah. yeah. It's right there. I noticed that with other things as I was starting mm -hmm. to learn more about like angels and guides and things. And then there were certain, but it still didn't feel like I could talk about it openly, you know, yeah. in the spaces I was in the mainstream Jewish communal spaces. Occasionally when I would visit like spot or hear certain things, I would be curious, like, oh, it seems like they have attention or something. But but, you know, like Shalom Aleichem took on, started taking on several years ago, a whole new meaning for me as I like really shifted it from like this theoretical thing to my understanding of, and not fully, like not saying that I, I'm actively aware, but like believing in the presence of, of angelic beings and positive energy spirits and being like, oh, th like this isn't like, that's not how most of the folks in the space are relating to this, but but I had these little pockets to your point about where I was like, but a number of these angels that other people in other traditions are talking about, they originate from our tradition. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like Kohenet has been able to be that place that also kind of through their education and their programs to show that you are part of a lineage, a mystical yeah intersectional feminist Jewish lineage that just isn't usually the main lineage that we talk about, but that right. it's there, it is real and it's yes. present in history. Yeah. yeah. And that, and that there is a long history actually in multiple parts, but it, it was more around who did it around divination mm -hmm. around engaging with spirit in different ways. I was just talking about it with my mom the other day. I don't think I want to go down this rabbit hole, but there's a, a healing modality that I almost, I did sign up for and then I actually canceled it because something intuitively told me to look it up. And I found a video of this like nace, clearly like a naysayer video. And I, I often watch these for a little bit and then stop them because I normally find whatever they're saying is bogus or projected stuff. And this thing, this guy was saying, I'm still kind of going down the rabbit hole, but I'm trying not to, <laughs> was saying that like this, this particular healing modality has demonic origins. And it was so cool for me to notice both as I was watching it. And then as I was talking about it with my mom, that before I'd done Kohenet, I would have been like, oh, that's weird. Right. But after learning about Jewish customs, around like creating demon bowls and about working with demons and about how to like navigate different spirits and things. And as this guy was talking about this, I actually had a Jewish framework through which mm. to assess what he was saying and be like, Oh, this sounds legitimate. And he's like, and I actually looked up which mountain this, this leader said he went to and the locals in that part of the country say that this is a mountain that is no, you know, anyways, he said all these different things that in light of all my different ways of knowing, I was like, 
this actually tracks so much so that I actually think I'm going to cancel this appointment because it seems that this tradition seems to engage in this demonic energy. And it actually helped me understand some other interspiritual modalities I've learned where without even trying, but it just seems like I've been guided in a good way that most of the modalities I've learned, they stress. And now I understand why that this is a modality, say like theta healing in which the theta, theta healer is in direct conversation with the divine. And they are just serving as an intermediary, but they're not engaging in other energies or doing the work themselves, but are putting forth the request of the patient to the divine and then letting Hashem or whichever word you want to use for the divine handle it. Anyway, so an aside, but it it just, but that was such a cool moment for me of noticing how far I've come on my Kohenet journey and all that it's taught me and continues to teach me about knowing how to more effectively navigate the world, which was the other primary reason why I wanted to do Kohenet. A major, like the, the major factor was what I already said. And part of it was that I was having all these different sort of shamanic or spiritual or spirit worker and mystical capacities develop and evolve. And I really, really wanted to be anchored in a tradition around it. I didn't want to just be freewheeling, going and doing things. I wanted to study different things, find out different parameters, even if there were different perspectives, but I wanted to be contextualized in a framework of loving accountability and, and rigor. That's beautiful. No, I'm so, I'm so happy that you found it. And as we're kind of rounding the corner towards the end of our conversation, but of course, I hope that this conversation, just like these, these dialogues and journeys continue because I've already learned so much. Yes. Can you hear it? So may it be Hashem's will, Holy One's will. Um, Amen. Um, I'm thinking about both these different kind of buckets or facets of your work and your journey and how you're, you've done all this integration work and how maybe they can be or could be more integrated. And I'm thinking about if you were to give some advice or some thoughts on where might Jewish justice spaces benefit from adding in a little more spirituality or connecting with spirituality and where might Jewish spiritual spaces gain or become more open and welcoming from engaging more with joyous justice principles? How might those support each other? Such juicy, wonderful questions. I I mean, so my answer, I think I'm going to start with is not directly answering your question, but I think it's in service of the response to both of these is that one cool development that's happened as I've been going on this journey toward Kohenet ordination this coming August has been as I've both gone through the curriculum of Kohenet and then also read extensively in service of my mystical development and also my indigenous and African like coming homework, all these different threads is that I've come to be so clear in a variety of ways, how so many different things are profoundly interconnected and, and I obviously knew that before, but I mean, in like a very practical sense, and that a lot of things that seem mysterious, from my perspective, often aren't, which doesn't mean that I have like, godlike perception, but I've just, so let me get more specific here, that 
the work around social and racial justice and collective liberation and spirituality. Like as I've been advancing in these different things, my spirituality and my justice work have become deeply interwoven. And to me, what we're talking about in in terms of some of the spirituality and my Afro-Indigenous and Jewish coming home work um, at those higher levels of that work, to me, those are advanced levels of racial justice, of decolonization work, of reclaiming as women, as Jews, as peoples who have been targeted for destruction with ancient and or indigenous lineages to engage in reclamation and reintegration of those things, of those ways of knowing and being and of existing in our bodies are at the more advanced levels of racial, uh, of social justice and racial justice work whether you call it decolonization, reblooming, reindigenization, and so, and or deassimilation, that, that as we work to undo the ways that we've internalized parts of systemic oppression into ourselves and into our communities and to our interactions, as we start to look for what the alternatives are and what are other ways of knowing outside of capitalism in terms of nature and all these different pieces and things that we see blooming in really beautiful ways all throughout our Jewish community around reorienting with the earth, doing these different things that, that they are, that the, to me, it's sort of a, I guess it's not a natural outcome because it's hard for some people to access this. But if you are doing this work more deeply or continually reading these different things, to me, they start, they start to merge and what can affect whether or not they merge, I think are the supports people have and what kind of messages they've received or predominant thoughts or recordings say that folks have about Um, different facets of this work, which I think different facets of spirituality versus community. And I think that that is, that starts to weave into more directly answering your question in the sense that in terms of like very practically, you know, I was honored to be invited and accepted a role on the leadership team, essentially the board of the Rise Up initiative, which works to weave spirituality and integrated wholeness into Jewish social justice work. And it's just vitally important. Um, I, you know, th- that, that wholeness, that wholeness that we've spoken about to me, like in the context of the current climate where things are very complicated and there are a number of deeply entrenched systems that we are aware through the impact of racism and climate change and all kinds of issues around class dynamics, that we need radical change. It is incredibly daunting. And I'm not prescriptive about this or, or mono minded, I don't know how to say, you know, singularly minded about it. But I do think that and I spoke about this once on a live with Rise Up and Slingshot that spirituality doesn't have to, but I think it can. And ideally, it will for a number of people, not necessarily everyone, but for many people can play an extremely vital role in social justice work for multiple reasons. Part of it is what drew me to mysticism in the first place, besides it sort of naturally arising within me, outside of it sort of naturally bubbling up within me, 
in my mid late twenties, I started to have an explicit desire for the mystical and metaphysical because I began to get very clear in my younger adult years that I, my power is finite right now. I am the youngest and strongest in certain ways that I will ever be with the most time availability. And I am hitting my physical limits. So I would like to develop a capacity for, which is what I've been working on, to receive, whether I'm conscious of it or not, to receive divine guidance. Because as much as I can know, there's so much I don't know. So whether it's through my ancestors or directly through God or through any number of different sources, I would like to be able to have a perception that weaves in greater wisdom and knowing so that I am taking as effective action as I can take. And then also to having a really robust spiritual grounding and rootedness because in this work, given the subjects and the difficulty of it and how demanding it can be, it's really helpful to have spiritual sustenance and grounding. And then from the community perspective around weaving in social justice or from the spiritual, from the spiritual community perspective, weaving in justice to me, if, if we are not weaving in, not weaving in justice, but <laughs> weaving in justice, social justice into what we're doing, then that to me, that to me in some ways is more obvious <laughs> in the sense that it's incomplete because the personal is political and not that we have to be explicitly political or partisan that can kind of get complicated in community, but we are people navigating political systems that affect the very real impact and daily material experience of our lives and of the communities we're a part of and our nation states and the globe. And so, and I think that especially if it's a healthy, robust spiritual community, which many, many are, there's also many that aren't, but I think there are more that are than are not. And particularly in a Jewish context that um, for the reasons I just spoke about a few moments ago and also other reasons. So one that in the ways that make sense for spiritual communities to share their abundance in various ways in service of collective change and the rootedness that we have. Oh, that this, that's a good way to, that, there's so many things we could say here and I'm wanting to both like speak to certain people, but I'm, but I'm going to ground it in what's intuitively coming up for me, which is that I teach this in my programs, like in my program uh, grounded and growing I more and more in this work, I'm so much less interested in what's hip and cool and so much more interested in a redefined understanding of resilience and purposefulness and cultivating skills over time that help us have wise discernment and spirituality lends itself or just beautifully complements and supports wise discernment and that spiritual sustenance and also balance is so critical for us to effectively engage in what I want to continually support and strive for, which is slow, deep, and irreversible positive social change that supports collective belonging and well-being and joy. So that's what I would say about that, Eliana. And I would say amen to that. Amen to that in ourselves, I mean to that in our work, I mean to that for our world. I mean. Before we close, 
April, I would love if you could offer us a prayer, whatever is on your mind and heart um, for us and our listeners today. Thank you for this invitation. I'm going to sink into my heart space and I'm putting my hands on my chest, covering my heart. And I invite you to do the same if that's resonant. And just feel into what you're feeling. What's surfacing for me to share as a prayer or a kavana with you, Eliana, and with you, beloved listener, is deep love and appreciation, first and foremost, for sharing this space and for being someone who supports Eliana's critical and gorgeous work in the world. And it is my prayer that her work continues to shine and expand and and deepen a wide array of folks and souls' connection to Judaism and through that the world and each other in ways that are deeply nourishing and empowering and in alignment with Eliana's highest vision for what it might bring to the world. And for all of us, my kavana, my prayer, is that we continue to sink into and feel embraced by shalem, wholeness, and more specifically as that might be experienced as profoundly bold, unconditional love and and both well-earned and absolutely unearned and just simply unconditional joy and fulfillment. And finally, my kavana, as I take a breath, I invite you to do the same. is that we feel a sense of shalem in our choices and we trust the wisdom we receive or that we generate around choices we make and notice that shalem is an evolving concept as we are evolving beings and we can feel increasingly whole as we make partial decisions, as we move in ways we both expect and don't um, and can continually cultivate and access greater wholeness that can be in service of our greatest spiritual and ethical becoming in service of our highest and the collective highest good. May this or a better plan of the divine be so. May it be Hashem's will. Amen. Oh, such a blessing to be with you today, April. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. It was such a joy to be here with you. And I loved talking about these wonderful and important subjects with you. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening. Our show notes are done by Yaffa Englander. Our editor is Christy Dodge. Our theme music is A New Light by me, <laughs> Eliana Light. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at thelight.lab, online at lightlab.co, 
And we hope that you will be joining us for more Tefillah explorations very soon. Bye, y'all.